The rest of you, open up to Acts 5. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to grab the Bible in front of you and use that one. We have all done this before. Um, we've, we've played make-believe. We've, we've done pretend-type games. We've put on clothes to, uh, to feel the part uh, or mannerisms um, to play the part. Uh, when our kids were little, and we still have little kids, uh, dress up and make-believe um, and pretend go on a lot. Hours and hours of dress up and playtime and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is wildly good, fun children's games. It's actually important. Um, everything that you've ever learned, neuroscientists are learning this, everything you've ever learned, you've picked up from mimicking other people. You ever had this happen? This happened to me yesterday. Yesterday, Eli, my 12-year-old, was driving my Jeep down Highway 280. Yeah, he was. Now, fortunately, I had the wheel, but Eli was next to me, and I looked out of the corner of my eye. He has no idea I'm talking about this. And I saw his hand sitting just so, his other hand on the gear shift, and every bit of his body posture was identical to mine. Do you remember doing this for your parents? I remember like my dad, like I would fold my legs just like his. He had a newspaper uh, back then or something. So I was holding something. And um, isn't this true, Eli? Eli didn't know I was going to share this. But it was perfect. He was mimicking it exactly. So I noticed it. I go, oh, are you driving, buddy? I'm like, all right, we're about to downshift because we're coming on to 87. So he's doing all the exact motions of that. Um, It's good to have your 12-year-old pretend to drive your Jeep, by the way, and not really drive your Jeep down Highway 280. Um, here's what's fascinating is adults play this game too, right? It's a fun children's game, but it carries on into adulthood. Raise your hand if you've heard the expression, fake it till you make it. All right. Now I won't have you leave your hand up if you've faked it till you make it, uh, kind of a thing. Um, but the reality is that on a first date or a job interview, uh, we often are putting on faces and fronts to be someone that we're not. We're often playing the role. We're we're dressing the part. We're putting on the mannerisms. And the Bible calls that something, it's called hypocrisy. It's play acting. It's pretend. It's make-believe. And this sort of subtle way of lying is a crazy accepted sin in the church. It's a really accepted sin in culture at large. So much so that I don't think people even bat an eye at all to, to doing this. In fact, some would say this is how business gets done. Here's the question. How do I stop playing the part and actually be who I want to project? So there is a gap between who we say we want to be and who we actually are. And this morning's text is going to look really intently at that and give us some of these answers. Do you know one of the devastating reputations of the bride of Jesus Christ? The church is called the bride of Christ. And one of the devastating reputations of the bride of Christ is that she is full of hypocrites. You heard that before? You might invite someone to Easter and they might say, I'm not going to a church. You go, how come? It's full of hypocrites. 
Do you know that we're supposed to have an answer ahead of time for how we're supposed to respond in these situations? If we really love people, we will think in advance of how we're going to do that. If you're going to pick up your angsty teenager from practice and you go, you know what? She had a rough day at the start. I was texting her. I think she got a rough day. You're going to plan ahead of time your own responses to come alongside and help that teenager um, in advance, right? You might run scenarios. So let me just run some scenarios for you. If you are sharing with people your excitement for church, and they mention that church is just full of hypocrites, consider the following. Here's number one. Number one is many, 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 many times I overhear people arguing with things they shouldn't argue about. I think about this all the time. Is there any way I can get on the same side as my opponent? Someone saying the church is full of hypocrites immediately puts me a little bit on edge. But what if I just get on the same side and say something like this? Oh, you're right. And you know what? God hates hypocrisy. God hates it. He desires and creates truth in the inmost being. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm so sorry you were hurt by, hip, by hypocrisy. And you know what? God, our Father, is as well. Do you see how that diffuses the immediate tug of war that we can often get into? No, it isn't, right? Like that might be your gut level response. And actually, it might be your experience. No, it isn't. That's one food for thought. Here's the second one. How about just clarifying terms? Clarify terms. Um, the reality is that many who call themselves Christians aren't. And we can know that because the Bible gives us definitive terms. Jesus taught much about this. Many will call me Lord, Lord, but they don't do what I say. So part of that is just clarifying terms. Real Christians hear and do what Jesus says. Friend, much of what you're seeing or rejecting may not be the actual bride of Christ. Maybe that's a post, maybe that's a caricature that you're seeing in a movie, or maybe that's your crazy uncle, and and they may not even be real Christians. So clarifying terms can be really powerful. Here's a third and final way. Open, about, open up about your own struggle. Vulnerability invites connection. So you might say something like this. God helps me every day close the gap between who I say I am and who I actually am. And you know what? I have a long ways to go. I go to church. And you're right. There is hypocrisy. God hates it. And he's working on me every single day. Isn't that powerful? Those are powerful other ways of responding than just getting into a da-da-da-da-da-da and then click, cancel, delete, unfriend. Never again am I going to talk to you. First John 2.6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Oh, that's so powerful. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. All right. So this morning is, um, is simply called imposter. And... The idea is this, fake it till you make it, and you won't. In the kingdom of God, you, you, you don't fake it till you make it into the kingdom of God. You don't fake it till you make it into holiness. You don't fake it till you make it into walking as Jesus did. That's not how it works. If that's what you're leaning on, you never will. The term suggests that by imitating confidence or competence or an optimistic mindset, you can somehow realize these things that aren't true of you yet. And if I just confidently keep doing this, they will just become true in me. It leads to another fascinating newer term, which is called imposter syndrome. 
And that's that deep sense that no matter where you go in all these different circles, like you aren't your, your, your real self. And there's this deep disconnect going on. In Acts chapter 5, we see the story of the soils. Jesus told stories called parables to teach a lesson. He told one about the four soils. Remember that one? And we see the story of the four soils come to life in this chapter. Just as a quick preview or or review of the story, Jesus talks about the gospel being the good seed. So the gospel is good no matter what kind of soil it falls on. But it falls on four different types of soils, which really are four different types of souls. And the gospel is scattered on different kinds of places. And depending on where it lands is whether it takes root and bears fruit or whether something else happens and it doesn't quite take. Here's what's fascinating about the parable of the four soils. What is the success rate of the gospel in that story that Jesus tells us? Remember? Huh? 25%. One of the four soils takes root and bears fruit. The three others have something other going on where it doesn't quite take. I don't know about your experience, but just finger in the wind experience, that rings true in my life as well. And I think 25% actually is pretty optimistic and hopeful, right? The soil goes out to a lot of different kinds of souls and soils, and there's a strong reaction to it. This is true in Acts chapter 5, and even though we're going to zoom in on just a portion of Acts chapter 5, let me give you a quick, like, speedy look over the whole chapter, because it's so incredibly powerful. The gospel seed is good, but the response always varies. Here's some of the responses. You can take notes on these if you want. Um, But you mention Jesus, and you get a reaction. Spirituality, God, nebulous forces, people are super good with that. But you mention Jesus, and and there's a little change in the conversation. You can just kind of feel it. Try that out. But what we see in in these responses in this chapter are the following. Number one, we see uh, hypocrisy and deceit from two church members. That's where we're going to spend most of our time, so I'm not going to make any real comments on that. But number two, we see benefit for the needy and belief from the humble in Acts chapter 5. If you look at verse 14, Acts chapter 5, 14, for a second... It says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The gospel seed goes out and belief to the humble who receive the word and help for the needy. That's what we see going on in Acts chapter 5. But we also see another thing. Thirdly, we see jealousy, confusion, opposition, and rage from the powerful and the proud. Same good gospel seed is going out. Same Jesus. He's provocative for good and he's provocative for for evil. It provokes these kinds of things, jealousy, confusion, opposition, and rage. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. Verse 24 says, when they had heard these words, they keep getting answered actually with these gracious, truthful answers by Peter and John. 
And each time they're answered well, it actually fills them with next level rage. Verse, 30, uh, verse 24, when they heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. They were just confused about them. Verse 33, when they heard this, another good answer, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. What on earth elicits such passion in these men? Here it is. Jesus and only Jesus saves. That's the message. That's what Peter and John keep preaching to them. It's the good seed of the gospel. They haven't tampered with the seed. It's that the seed will land on different soils. Finally, last two verses of the chapter, what we see is joyful, energized confidence and focus to finish the mission from his disciples. Same gospel seed, same events, same sequence of events going on. And in verse 41, after they get released from prison, threatened and beaten some more, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, in the temple and in their community group, every day, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Does that sound like focused people? These people had to make a living. These people had to keep their minivan running. These people had to get people to soccer practice. These people had to deal with bills and food and sleep and housing and all that stuff. In case it's tripping you up, they didn't really have many vans. I'm being facetious. <laughs> Here they are, joyful, energized, and confident because of it. The gospel seed has impact. You mention the name of Jesus, you will get a reaction. So I want to focus our attention on these first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read it in full, and it's probably a pretty familiar story to some of you. Um, it's about two ch- church members who are exposed as frauds. Now, here's what's happening at the end of four that we didn't quite get to. A guy by the name of Barnabas, there's this joyful, generous community being displayed, this common love between people, this genuine sense of caring for for one another. And, um, And at the end of chapter four, you see Barnabas, who is just one example of this sort of glorious sacrificial generosity that's, that, that's displayed. And then in chapter 5, there's kind of a shift in the wind. If you're watching a movie, this is where the tone of the music changes a little bit. And we see something similar but different with Ananias and Sapphira. And one of the reasons Luke, Dr. Luke, who's writing this, is a respected historian inside and outside the Christian circles, in other words, those who believe his message and those who don't, is because Luke reports the warts. He is reporting on reality. He's not writing a fairy tale, and he's not writing propaganda. Propaganda would leave this kind of stuff out. He is just writing what actually happened in the early church. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Follow along with me. But a a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let me just let that episode sit with you for a moment. I have read this passage, studied it many times, talked about it a lot, studied it a lot this week, and my reading it in this setting produces fresh emotion and sort of fresh reaction to it. It's good to sit with the scriptures. Let the word go out and let it kind of sit with you. As you hear this episode, I'd be curious to hear from a couple of you, maybe a couple of things. First of all, what, what is the crime happening here? What's, what's the bad thing that has gone on that has received the judgment of the Lord with immediate death in this passage? Deceit. Yep. Is selling your property wrong? Pride, okay. Greed, okay. What's your reaction to what what goes on? To the people, to the church, to God? What are some of the things, and not everyone's going to share, you have a reaction to this. Anyone want to share? Whoa? Yeah. Yeah. Andrew? Confusion? God's serious. Yeah. Troubled by it. Yeah. Good to sit with the text, isn't it? Kind of powerful to hear it read in this setting instead of where you might normally read your Bible. Because this kind of a setting, a church setting, is where this is going on. One of the things we do every single Sunday here in this church is we take up an offering. We're going to take up an offering um, after the sermon today. Um, I kind of, <laughs> right? I kind of joked with the team. I kind of joked with the team ahead of time. I said, you know, plan on some, like, maybe trembling hands as they pass the basket. Uh, you know, some weeping, some prayer. Like, God, just, I want to make sure. I mean, like, what Lucas just read, like, 
God loves a cheerful, am I 100% cheerful in this, right? So, so we're going to look at, at some of these responses. Let me, let, me, let me say this. We've already touched on this, but premeditated deception is what we see. That's what we know for sure. And um, this, this conspiracy between a couple, right, is, 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 what's, is what's going on. Sort of the sermon in a sentence, if you will. Um, Christian, I'm having a hard time. And never mind. There it goes. Let me advance one more, see if it works. There we go. I want you to write this down. The central truth is what I'm driving at in this text in one sentence. That imposters come in the form of both people and saviors, or little g-gods. And God exposes both of them for our good and for his glory. So imposters come not only in the form of people, but also in saviors. I think most often, I think we talk about people as imposters, and they are. In fact, we are, right? God's working on that. When our insides don't match the outsides, we are pretenders. We are lying. We are projecting something different than what's truthful. Today we're going to zoom in on imposter gods, little g gods, that promise what only Jesus can deliver. And they're everywhere. But there's a couple I want to zoom in on this morning. These false idols are being served and trusted here, and they prompt God's immediate response, and it's really uh, instructive for us. Here's how I'm going to phrase it this morning, the praise of people and money, maybe specifically the love of money. These two are paired together a lot in our literature. This is from a hymn that we sing called Be Thou My Vision. Riches I heed not, nor what? Man's empty praise. Money? Praise of people. You hear it? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. So false idol, number one, if you're taking notes, is just the praise of people. It comes in some other kinds of... Oh, this is really freaking out. Can you get to the false idol praise of people one for me, Christian? Thank you. Um, This comes with some other words. Reputation, right? Or brand, building your brand, building your name. Right? So reputation is what this is talking about. Now, we don't know. We actually have to guess at some of this because this isn't all said in the text. Even some of what we think the crime might be isn't explicitly said in the text, but we can infer it. Um, it looks like inspired by the act of Barnabas at the end of chapter 4, this couple makes this tragic mistake that building their name is more important than building God's name. Why would you sell something sacrificially and obey your master, Lord, and Savior other than to build his name? Other than to say that God is almighty and the best thing I can do is get on board with just praising. I want to be found praising God's name, right? And this couple, probably inspired by Barnabas and maybe the reaction they got and the chatter that went on afterwards, um, they, they want that same sort of thing. But they, they are really building their own name and that's what we see. Um, one of the things that my kids will tell you is um, if this pastoring thing doesn't work out, I'm going to open a driving school. And so Dave's driving school, I've already enlisted half of the city in Dave's driving school. We have, um, we have a lost art in our city, and it's the art of signaling. 
Um, there is a little thing, in case you don't know, I'll, I'll do it this way. So you There's a little switch over here that, that is an indicator light of your intentions of where you're going. Okay? As a cyclist, as a motorcyclist, as a fellow driver, I would appreciate if you would pick the habit back up of signaling. It's wildly important, okay? So as I'm driving along, I am recruiting people. Cassie, I recruited several people yesterday, didn't I? Uh, I'll be with Cassie. I'm teaching her to drive, and I recruit people. I just go, man, they would benefit from Dave's driving school. They really would. I would make them a better driver, and it would be a safer environment. So while people are setting down the habit of signaling, they're picking up a different habit, and it's called virtue signaling. Have you heard of that term? Now, the term is relatively new, but the behavior is not new at all. Virtue signaling um, is this. It's publicly expressing opinions and sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. That's from probably Wikipedia or somewhere on Google, but it's pretty accurate. That's how I read it too. Doesn't social media make this all the more tempting? Of course it does. All you do is you change your, your icon you know, or add an emoji or add something, and all of a sudden, you have expressed your utter disgust and outrage at something, or you have absolutely celebrated something, and here's the thing, you haven't done a single thing. Nothing. You've clicked a little button. You've changed your thing. That's it. That's virtue signaling. Hypocrisy hides in the heart. The hypocrisy that hides in my heart is deadly to me. The hypocrisy that hides in your heart is deadly to you. But not only you, the community around you. Your sin affects the people you are in relationship with. Hypocrisy devastates a community like this. What's goodness that's hip right now? I want you to imagine a woman who rides her bikes, recycles, drives a hybrid car with a We Heart Ukraine sticker on the back, all the while her heart is filled with hate toward her neighbor. I want you to imagine a company that boldly advertises all of its green measures for the environment, while it never says a word, in fact, it hides its sort of green with greed money-making practices that exploit people all over the place. We live in a land of two-faced people. We just sing this. I've never caught this line in good God Almighty before. But why would I try and make you something that you're not? You know why? Because we put, we put man's image and our own heart on God. God is altogether different than anyone you've ever met, including your own self. You know who's most at, most at risk of missing your own hypocrisy? You. It's actually why we need community. It's why we need being called out about this kind of thing. Look at this passage in Romans 10. Romans 10. It says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If you drive a hybrid or ride a bike or recycle, good on you. I, I actually do two of those things. It's not about the, the, the actual activity, is it? It's actually about motive of the heart. It's about people who are self-righteous. They've rejected God's righteousness, so they create a new bar 
that says everyone who's made it over this bar is in the club, and anyone who's not is a disgusting slob who needs to be canceled or evangelized to get up above the bar. Do not think that Christians or religious people have a market on this. We are increasingly an irreligious society. We're seeing this is just a human heart condition. That's all it is. Washing the outside of the cup to perfection while the inside reeks of rotten milk. This is rampant. And Jesus rails against it. And so should we. And we should start with our own cup. We should be paying attention to our own cup. The problem is misunderstanding root and fruit. The very nature of goodness is not that we would somehow make good fruit and it will turn the root of our trees healthy and good. That is outside-in thinking. That's faking it till you make it. It will never happen. It's never once happened in all of created uh, history through nature. That's not how it works. And Jesus sort of points this out to us really bluntly. The reality is that if you are trying to be good on your own, instead of allowing Jesus to make you holy, you are left in the sphere of Ananias and Sapphira. You're sort of in this same waters that they're wading through. Praise seekers want the reputation of a Barnabas without the actual compassion and sacrifice that Barnabas had. Paul saw people-pleasing at complete odds with Christ-pleasing. Galatians 1.10 says this, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. That's very, very black and white. God saw it in urgent, serious terms, enough to judge them immediately for it. A certain kind of cleansing for the early church, a warning to the early church right from the start. But there's another apparent false god at work here, and that's money. Now, here's what's interesting about money as a false god. Um, Money is not bad. But 1 Timothy gives us input. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What I want you to notice in... By the way, (laughs) this is an interesting thing. If you begin to talk about money, I think it's like having a relationship with money. One of the CG questions is, what is your relationship like with money? Is it a health, do you have a healthy relationship with money and possessions? Oftentimes, if your very first reflexive answer, if someone says, well, um, the love of money is the root of... Well, well, money itself isn't bad. If you're too defensive about money, like your money's bodyguard or money's PR agent or whatever, maybe, like just Maybe there's a hint of like you're too eager for it or you're too big on defending it. Like if this is your life verse and anytime anyone says anything bad about money, you're like, wait a minute, I've got a verse, right? You might need to slow your roll and humble yourself and receive some input. Maybe your relationship is a little unhealthy with money. Just saying. Here's what I want you to notice. There's a really subtle compromise in this. 
They kept back a part, which means what? They gave part of it. These are not non-giving people who say, I want to receive from Jesus, but I don't want to employ anything that would call anything from me to sacrifice for Jesus. No, no, no. These are givers. In fact, what happens is givers like this exist in abundance. God gave supernatural insight to Peter in this instance to see this. He just gave him revelation. That's what it looks like. We don't see that there's any other tip off as to how he would have known that. So the, the sin wasn't in selling it or not. It, wasn't, it was in giving all or a part. Actually, no, it wasn't in giving it all or a part. It was lying about it, right? It was just that deception that went on. Part of the curse that occurs in Genesis 3, pretty early on in the story, is that we are now disintegrated. We're disintegrated from each other. We're disintegrated from creation. We're disintegrated in ourselves. This is why there's a gap between who we say we are and who we want to be. So the word integrity, living with integrity, is having a disintegrated life become integrated. Heart, soul, mind, and strength all on one page. And this is part of the process of what God does in sanctification. He's the one who causes the inside to match the outside. And the way he works is from the inside out. Mind and heart in one accord. Remember from last week, our confidence rests on Jesus. So instead of little g God as our true Savior and powerful God, he makes us generous and free. What a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. God not only frees us from pleasing others at all cost, which some people are enslaved in that, pleasing other people at all cost, or from the love of money, but he frees us to be generous with ourselves and generous with our stuff. Not needing from others, but gladly giving it to them. The love of money stems from the security that we think that it will bring us or the pleasure that we think it will bring us. Jesus said these words, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. He's saying get your priorities straight. Have your loves in order. Have your pleasings in order. Don't please people, please God. He goes on to teach about the reality that you can't serve God and money. You'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and serve the other. He says it really plainly and bluntly. So as disciples who act on what they know, let me put this central truth back up for a moment. Disciples who act on what they know. Imposters come in the form of people and saviors, and God exposes both for our good and for his glory. I want to wrap up just talking about how should we respond. And I want to just do that with some questions. Here are some sort of starting point questions. We've been calling this series Church Activate. That there are actions to do. There are things to get about doing. And where should we start? Right in the middle of where you are, right? Right in the middle of where you are with your own self. So much of these are penetrating internal questions not so much uh, outside of you questions. Here's number one. Church, do you fear God 
and worship him alone. Verse 11 says, great fear came upon the whole church. When sin is exposed this way, it ought to prompt those kinds of things. Is it harsh, wrong, or surprising that God's judgment on their lie was death? Again, when I reread that passage, even this morning, it stirs something up. If you really are paying attention and listen to it. I want you to consider this, that any sense of us thinking that this is harsh makes light of lying and may express more about how far my value system is from God's than a judgment about God himself. Maybe you've said this or heard this, what is so wrong about a little white lie? The fact that we have little names for it (laughs) is kind of curious. Here's what's so wrong with little white lies. Do you know what made the top 10 of God's laws? Not lying. Not lying. If love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, what does lying produce? Think about it. Dishonesty in any of its form, fast forward, leads to death. We reflect God's image as truth, capital T. Catch this. Or we reflect Satan's image as father of lies, angel of light, deceiver. That's sobering to me. Galatians 6 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sometimes people will come to you and they say, I don't want to believe in a God. I can't possibly believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've thought it before. I hope you have because that's wrestling with heavy thoughts. The shock and surprise of that statement is actually the same one that is sitting right here. The shock and the surprise is how the grace of God makes him so incredibly long-suffering. That apart from his mercy, us walking around living the life that we lead to the best of our human ability is an affront to God. It's the equivalent of tyranny. It's the equivalent of traitor. It's the equivalent of terrorism against God's kingdom. And a lie introduced to that deserves that kind of swift judgment and punishment. God's staying power, friend, is, is to, be re, to be received as, as mercy. And to be walking around saying, God, but for the grace of God this hour... I would go the way of death. I would go the way of corruption. You have withheld the proper recompense that my sin deserves. The person you're witnessing to that is living a life of rebellion towards God, this time and space is a season to repent. Open your mouth to your friend. Give them the invitation. Here's number two. 
not only the fear of God. Church, do you expose and renounce false idols? It's one thing to generally say we shouldn't compromise. We shouldn't trust and sacrifice to false gods. Amen, preacher. It's another to name the false idol that has your heart. Church, do you name and expose and renounce false idols? Reputation and money are still enslaving people. Would you agree with me? Man, those have strong pulls. Those have strong pulls in my own life. I see it everywhere. Jesus named reputation as a false savior. The Pharisees loved to say long prayers in public. He said the only reward they would get is the temporal praise of people. You've already received your reward. You're a really good prayer in public. Woohoo! Hope you enjoyed that, because that's it. Jesus calls money a master and rightly points out you can't serve God and money at the same time. Church, strive toward being rich toward God. Barnabas, who sold it all, went on to become a key figure in the early church. He lived what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty and not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Number three, church, do you tend to your inner life? All of these are from our text this morning. Verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? All sin starts in your mind. Starts with a little thought. This is why we're to take every thought captive immediately, right then and there. God, give me the help to kill this right now. All sin is against God. Isn't it curious that Peter's saying, you lied to God. They were lying to the church and the Holy Spirit. He equates that with lying to God. All sin is first and foremost an affront to God. All sin invites the activity of Satan. Satan is specifically again referenced and he is opposed to all things of God. Therefore, he's opposed to his servants. So church, apply the gospel to your inner parts. Let it sink down into the deepest part of you. God desires truth in the inmost being. When it says walk in the light... Don't tolerate shadows. And this is just a daily, ongoing practice. Decades of Christianity, you talk to Christians who've walked with Christ for a long time. They are, they are working out their salvation in this area. Band, would you come on up? Here's the good news. The gospel keeps you from pretending. It frees you from pretending. From devoting our lives to the approval from other people or to stuff. Instead of all that energy of managing your stuff or managing your reputation, what would it look like for a single week if all that energy could be poured into just being who you are and being about rich towards God? Free to be with people without needing anything from them. Free to speak words that don't sort of tilt toward how holy you are, how smart you are, how funny you are, how connected you are, how serious you are, whatever. Just, I am the beloved today. God, I have all I need in you. I don't need anything from people. Help me just be a gift to people. Help me just give to people. We're going to take up the offering this morning. And again, there's 
maybe no more passage in all the Bible that maybe helps us lean in a little bit more and not do things out of rote religious habit. As we take up the offering, and some of you do this digitally, so it's a good practice, even if you do this a digital thing, to stop and have that be this little carved out moment of worship. Let me just admonish you to kill the pretender in you by generously and sacrificially giving as an act of worship to benefit others. And then you know what we're instructed to do? Don't talk about it. Don't post it. Don't discuss it. Just do it. Jesus says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is. Just do it. Just be a generous person knowing that God sees that. Would you close your eyes and let me use Matthew as a closing prayer for this morning. Jesus' words, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have your reward. Then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward you.